Okay, so we are doing remote Bible study again, and uh, we miss you guys being here, but hopefully this is just for a short time and we will get back to our regular stuff, but we'll still be putting it live and uh, on Instagram for you guys to watch and look back at. Uh, before we start, let's pray. Dear Lord, uh, we're thankful um, just that you are in control of everything that is going on. Um, we're thankful that we can trust you and we can believe in your promises that no matter what else is going on in the world that we can trust in that. Help us to keep our eyes focused on that and um, to stay on the straight path. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so we are doing Abraham. Um, and this is our third week now. And we are looking at his life and how God called him and it is um, set in the time after Noah. It is in the book of Genesis, so at the very beginning. Um, that's what Genesis means. If you didn't know, it means the beginning or beginning. And we're just going to draw a map quick. Hopefully you can see it on the screen. But we have the Tigris and the Euphrates River. And they're not par typically part of our map over here, Tigris and Euphrates, but then we have the Dead Sea and the Sea of Galilee and the Jordan River. Down here is Jerusalem, but it is not the Jerusalem that you are usually uh, familiar with in the Bible at this point. It's probably just a kind of a fortress on the hill. This is the Nile River and Egypt. <clears throat> and then, of course, we have the Red Sea. And um, what is important is that over here is the city of Ur, and that is where Abram, as we know him right now, because his name hasn't been changed, and he is from the city of Ur, and then he travels um, him and his family after God calls him. They then go to Haran, which is in the north, uh, north of Sumer, and um, if we remember, this is a unique thing where there are not many people during this time who God speaks to or who are friends with God. And it's very important to note that, um, I, don't, I don't think we talked about this unless you did last time, but that this is... Abraham is famous not just for his faith, but also for being the friend of God. There are other people like David who was, had a heart af, um, that he had a heart after God, and there are other people who um, are known for all sorts of different types of relationships with God. But Abram is the one who is known as being the friend of God, and he calls him. Um, at a time when very few people believe in God. So this is a, it 
highlights how much faith he had to answer that calling. So God picks him and says, you need to get out. And out of what? Well, he's got to leave his family and his friends who are um, he's grown up with. And the reason that he has to leave them, if you remember, is because they are, one of the main reasons is they are idol worshipers. That they don't believe in the real God. They have lost that because if we recall that Noah, when the earth restarted with him, it is Noah and then his three sons and their fa- and their families, and that is it. And they all believe in God because they were saved, literally, um, with their physical life was saved. And from there, as is natural to happen, they lose uh, their way and they forget about what the good things God did and slowly then they do not any longer believe in him. So God is saying that um, that I'm going to choose you this time to begin fresh but in a new way. So after he leaves Haran, or sorry, leaves Ur, and he goes to Haran, he stops. We remember why he stops. He stops because Tara has, this is, this is what we read between the lines in the text. And you always want to be careful when you're doing that. But there are a few places outside of Genesis. One is in Joshua, where Joshua himself, who comes later, says that in times past, um, even in the family of the father of Abraham, Terah, worshipped idols. And we also, um, we find out that Abram doesn't finally answer God's call and fully commit until after Terah dies. So we think that there, that is probably what one of the major hangups is, is that there are still idol worshiping going on within the family. And we know also later, if you look farther along in Genesis, we look at Jacob's story and his uncle Laban, when he, um, leaves, um, I think it's Bethel area, he leaves and goes to Haran, fleeing his um, brother's wrath to his uncle Laban and stays with him. Laban is still worshiping idols and even his wife, Rachel, still worships the idols even after she marries Jacob. So this is a problem for them and that is one of the main reasons why God has told him to leave his family behind, those who won't commit and to leave the city because he needs to make that full commitment to God. Okay, so and then we, um, last week you looked at the promises and I was unable to look at, listen to the lesson or watch it. So I'm going off of uh, the story and not actually what you talked about. So, but, um, In those actual promises, there's a few that God gives him. And he says that I will give you Canaan. So he's going to give him Canaan. Which is this whole region right down around here is Canaan. 
He also promises him that he will uh, be the father of a great nation. And remember, he has no children, and his wife is Sarah, or Sarai is too old to have children. And then he also says that um, you will be blessed. And on top of that, he's going to bless those who bless him. And he's going to curse those who curse him. So this is, he has an effect on the other people that are around him. The people that align with him and the people that say, I'm against you. Um, so that, those are the promises that God has given him. And they're, they are, we also talked about this a little bit, that they are very uh, big picture ideas. A great nation, what, when, how. What are they, what's going to make them great? You don't, none of these things you know yet. Uh, you have some specificity in that he's going to get the land of Canaan, but it, that's a loose term because there are not the property lines that we have drawn on the map that determine where something like Turkey ends and Georgia begins, okay? We don't have those yet. It's really whoever has the might and power to control an area. Okay. So then famine comes and he heads down to Egypt because he knows, he says, oh, I heard that there is, and he's, again, he's wandering around altered Canaan, but then he says, oh, there's a famine, save our, um, our lives, we need to go down to Egypt. And because Egypt has the Nile River that never dries up and they always are able to grow food down there. So... They get food down there in Egypt, but this is where we find that Abraham has one of his first of his few failures that are recorded in trusting God completely, where he does not do that. And um, he lies about Sarah being his wife. And you think, well, that's a weird thing to lie about, but um, he was afraid that if they knew, because she apparently was beautiful enough that he was still afraid, even at her being 80 years old, that somebody would take, kill him and take her to be their wife. And instead, what happens is she becomes part of Pharaoh's, um, his, uh, like his concubines, his harem. And by God's blessing, nothing, um, their marriage is not, is not, um, is not tainted through that, but he lies and that causes their marriage to be in danger and um, puts her in danger as well. So <clears throat> then we find though that when Pharaoh finds out that she's actually his, his wife and not his sister as he lied about, that he says, well, you gotta get out of here and he sends them away with riches and wealth when he sends them to leave. And the reason that he finds out that um, she finds out that something's up is all of a sudden all these plagues come upon Egypt. And he says, what is going on? The only thing that's changed is this Abraham fellow has come. And um, for however, it doesn't explain how he finds that out, but he does. And this is, this is already God's promises coming into effect with 
the I will bless those who bless thee and curse those who curse thee. So when it is um, to Abraham's detriment that he is there and his wife and his marriage is in danger and God's promise how he, although Abraham doesn't know it yet, he plans to fulfill it through um, them having a child. God curses Pharaoh and then when, um, when he leaves because Pharaoh gives him blessing, um, the plagues leave Pharaoh. So we're already seeing how God is holding up his end of the promise. Okay, so now we're going to get into chapter 13 tonight. And there is something about Abraham that speaks to us, I think, that we can identify with. And that is, it is something deep down that, Everybody has within them, and you might be thinking, okay, well, what, what in the world can I identify with Abraham with? He lived a long time ago. I'm, I'm not some great um, father of a nation or this famous person or anything like that. Well, if we think about it, what, what similarities we have is that what has God promised you? And I'll use a different color. But the promises that apply to all of us. He's promised us a home in heaven. Okay, you can tie that to Canaan. Okay, that's similar. Um, he has promised us salvation. easy one if you know anything about the Bible he has promised never to leave you he has promised um, to help you through your trials And then there are many, many more promises, um, but how is he going to do that? How is he going to fulfill these promises for us? And the answer is, if you really, if you think about it, other than salvation, that's the one exception because you've already seen how that's fulfilled might not understand how it works or why it, or um, all the nuances of it, but there, all these other ones, you don't know how they're going to be fulfilled. You know there's a home in heaven, but you don't know what's going to be in it. You don't know um, where it's going to be. You don't know what it's going to look like. You don't know how you're going to get there. There's a lot of things you don't know about it. Um, he's promised to never leave you. Well, when is he going to never leave you? Well, he's always going to never leave you. I guess we're getting into like double negatives here, but you don't know what that looks like when you feel alone or you feel that uh, you are abandoned. You don't know 
what it's going to be like every time that he is sticks there um, through things with you. And you don't know how he's going to help you through those trials. You don't know what that help is going to look like. And sometimes that help doesn't, you don't even realize it's help until you're on the other side. And Abraham has that same thing where he doesn't know how these promises are going to be fulfilled, but all that he knows is that they are promised to him. And he trusts in God's methodology, how he's going to carry out that it's the best way. Um, and then the other thing that he does know and that we can know is that he calls us. Or you could put under that purpose. He has a purpose for you. He calls you to do something. He has a plan for you. So um, here's my terrible segue because I didn't have a better way. Music. All right. We all, we talk all the time here, if you've never noticed, about how music reaches people the way nothing else can. And that it is... Um, it speaks to you, it speaks to me, it speaks to our soul in a way that nothing else can. Um, the closest thing I'd say to it would be story, uh, things like Jesus' parables, um, something like Abraham. Those can speak to you, but music has a special way of doing it. And what evidence do you have that music speaks to you in a different way. Just you know, think about it. You're like, okay, well, I have my experience, but how, how do you even put that into words, your own experience with music? But I think an either a good evidence that's still all anecdotal, but is how you can observe music affecting other people. And some of that is, is real easy. You know, you're at, you can watch people dance who would never do anything like that, but they will do it when there's music. They will be out there and wild or whatever. But even more powerful is look at people who are very old and who are losing function. They are losing mental capacity, but music will awaken things inside of them. They'll awaken their mind. It'll uh, bring back memories. It can affect, um, br bring out things in them like nothing else can. And then um, another one is because there are a lot of similarities that you can draw between elderly and babies. There's a lot of similarities, okay, the beginning and end of life. And babies, because we have a little baby at home, and that is only just started showing one other emotion besides crying. And just not crying. And that is she now smiles a little bit. And probably even smiles even when it's not gas. So we have been playing 
different music for her, different things that we like or what we think she might like. And you never know what it's gonna, what ones she's going to all of a sudden cry because she doesn't like it or that she just endures or that seems to like. But the one, we came across one song where we play it and stops her crying a lot of times and makes her smile, makes her happy. And that is the song, You're Welcome from Moana. I don't know why. She seems to like the rock singing. I don't know. Not that he's a great singer. Maybe it's more just the music and how it's written, but she likes that song. So because of that, we have been listening to a whole lot of Moana, not just You're Welcome, but just the entire soundtrack, not or any of the songs from Moana. And I had, before we discovered she liked the song, we had seen the movie before, and my initial reaction to it was, I was, oh, I really like this story. It's a good story. I enjoyed that movie. It was pretty, that was pretty deep for a kid's movie. And um, if you're not familiar with the movie, you should go watch it because it's a good movie. It's not, I know there's a lot of new Disney movies that are just dumb. They are, they are shallow and they have no, they don't have meaning to them, but this is a good movie. Um, and because the music is always playing, I have paid way more attention to the lyrics of the songs and just to the story itself that's told through um, a lot of the music. And there are a lot of good truths in it. And I probably never would have made any of these ties had we not been think studying Abraham at the same time that we're that I am just inundated with Moana at the same time. But Moana is a young girl who is living in, I guess you'd call it ancient Hawaii, before Western civilization Hawaii. And she is going to one day be the chief of their island that they live on. And she is like picture perfect daughter. She's really good at figuring out the crop cycles and helping the little other little kids and all this other stuff. She does everything perfect. She has a wonderful family life. She has great parents, great extended family. Unlike many other Disney stories, you have like broken families, which makes a whole nother different type of good story. But she has everything is great except for one thing is that she feels a calling to the water, to the outward expanse of this, um, to go off the island. And the problem with that is everyone on the island is afraid of the water, which rightfully so. The ocean is a very scary place. If you have never been on the ocean on a boat, like a, even a, especially a small boat, or if you've never been to the beach and experienced whoa, I kind of drifted out far from shore. I need to get back. And then it takes a long time to get back because the ocean is powerful. So they're afraid for a good reason because you should have a respect, but they, they do not like how much she feels this draw to the water. But there is one other person who does, who shares this, um, this affinity for the water that she does is her, this old woman. At first you just think it's a crazy old woman. Surprise, it's her grandma. 
spoiler alert, but it's early on in the movie, and she has a bit of this too. So she encourages her a bit in that, but later she finds out um, that their ancestors here were people who were explorers and adventurers, that this, they didn't always live on this island, that they came here and they hopped islands and all this, and she realizes, well, that's, that's what I feel too. I feel like I have a purpose off of this island. I feel this duty to the island, but I have to leave the island. And she goes on this, this long journey across the ocean in a small sailboat and everything. And the whole time she's, because the water, it's almost like the supernaturally, the water helps her, but doesn't talk to her. It's, it's, um, it's anthropomorphized the water, but, and she, but the whole time she doesn't, she knows her end goal, but she has no idea the how of how to get there. And she has all these struggles where she just tries stuff and then she gets knocked back like three steps and it takes six steps just to get back to where she was before. And it's the struggle through the entire thing. And sometimes she feels like there's no hope. Sometimes she gets really high highs in it. And the best scene in the whole movie that was really what, the first time I watched it, I was like, oh, this is good. And then every time I see it more, I'm like, oh, this is really good. Is where she is feeling utterly defeated. It is nighttime on the water. If there is not a place where it's only you on a boat that you feel the most alone and insignificant is nighttime on the water. Very scary, unknowns all around you, and she is feeling utterly defeated. And just when she's feeling utterly defeated, she drops this special object in the water, in the ocean, and it's sinking, sinking, sinking. Can't get it. And she, she needs that to do what she feels her purpose is. And then her grandma's spirit comes to her. And... Um, says to her, she has this whole song where she talks to her about what her, um, just who she is and her purpose and encouragement. And then at the end of the song, she says to her, who are you? And then it's great because Moana says, she says, who am I? Like really asking herself, who am I? And then she says all these things. Well, I am... I am a girl who loves her island, like loves her people. I'm a girl who, all these things she says, but I still feel that calling. I feel a calling. And I have this purpose and it sparks her. She gets up and she says, I'm going to do this. She dives in the water, gets the stone, gets the sail up and she's sailing again. And then the end of that scene is like her boat gets flipped and then it goes to the next door. But this has just been running through my mind that it's it this is like you're like well what does this have to do with abraham well abraham is like moana in the sense that he is the only one he's the last person in his family who believes in god he had this long line of from from um, adam and eve had their son seth after cain and abel who he was a godly man and then enoch came from him he was a godly man 
then Methuselah, and then eventually Noah, who was the, God, the last godly man. And then that starts a new line where um, Shem, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. I think it's Ham is um, the great-grandfather of Abraham. And finally, he's the last person, again, the last one who believes, just like Moana is the only one who knows this and believes this, that there's this purpose. And Abraham has to ignore what his family is telling him, ignore his family's belief and say, no, I know this is what is right and I've got to do this. And he struggles through it and he goes with, through what is tough and what is hard and he keeps getting knocked back and sometimes he feels hopeless. He really doesn't know what to do. But, um, and this time he is really just messed up. He has put his, not just his wife's, um, just the sanctity of their marriage at stake, but that is going to be a struggle for them with their relationship for the rest of their lives, that they, that that happened. And then he puts his, the whole promise with God at jeopardy. And it is important now what he does after losing his way and following God and losing a little bit of that faith. He lacked faith in an important moment. Chapter 13 of Genesis, verses 1 through 4. Abraham went up out of Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and Lot with him into the south. And Abraham was very rich in cattle and silver and in gold, which was given him by some of that by Pharaoh. And he went on his journeys from the south, even to Bethel, unto the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Hai. Okay, so just went through that trial in Egypt. Feels like he's quite the failure right now. And he goes back up to this place, this little place called Bethel. And I'm sorry, that's not the location is bad. Sorry. It's actually pretty close to Jerusalem, I'm remembering now. Back up to Bethel. Now, I don't know if you touched this last week, this verse, but in chapter 12, in verse um, 8, it says that after he left Haran, he comes down to Bethel, puts his tent there, and he builds an altar to God. And he, and he called on God at that time. It doesn't say why he called on him, but he called on him because they are becoming friends. He talked to him about whatever it might be, whatever his struggles were then, talking to him about the promises, about what he wants him to do now. Well, it's important now that after that struggle back in Egypt, that he goes back to where he was last in tune with God. This is something that we have to do sometimes in our lives that you, you are slacking off in whatever area and you say, wait a minute, wait a minute. Let's go back to where I was, I was feeling God's spirit. I was doing what I needed to be doing. I was doing the right things that I was um, in a good place and a good um, position with God. And I need to go back there and get myself realigned with God, just like we 
recall in Pilgrim's Progress, we have Christian who there are times where he wanders off the path or he does not quite the right thing. Like uh, they wander off the path and get into um, giant despair's realm and they have to get back to the path. And that's a struggle to get back there. But in the end, it's important to realign yourself. And he goes back to Bethel and he goes and he, I'm sure when he got there, he put, did an, um, went to that altar and he called on God again. He said, I'm back here. I'm, I'm still seeking after your promises. I'm still seeking after you. I'm realigning myself with you. And, um, <clears throat> He made it out by the skin of his teeth in Egypt. He was very close to things going awry there, but still God blesses him. Because that's God's promise to him that he's going to bless him. Even through all that, because even though God can turn things that are even our mistakes, and he can use them for good. So he gave Abraham a bunch of wealth from that, which he will use later. He will use it for things. He will um, be a good steward of it. Uh, so let's continue on now. And we're going to go to verse 5 through 7. And Lot also, which went with Abraham, had flocks and herds and tents. And the land was not able to bear them, that they might dwell together. For their substance was great, so they could not dwell together. And there was a strife between the herdsmen of Abraham's cattle and the herdmen of Lot's cattle. And the Canaanite and the Perizzite dwelled in the land. Okay, so they are now back up here at Bethel. And they travel down this way towards the Dead Sea. And around the Dead Sea today, as you, if you were to go there, it is... Um, you probably know this fact, maybe not, but it is the saltiest body of water in the world. It's saltier than the ocean. I don't know if you've ever tasted ocean water. It is like really gross. Like you get it in your mouth and you're like, <laughs> like you gotta go get a drink because, and wash your mouth out because it is so salty. I mean, I can remember in Georgia, cause we lived near the beaches. We went there quite a bit. You would come back from the beach and your hair would just be like stiff from the amount of salt in it. Well, the Dead Sea, I don't remember the stat on it, but it is way saltier. In fact, it is so salty that you can, like, you can float in it without having to know how to float in the water. You just float in it. That's how salty it is. It changes, um, it, it changes the density, I guess, of the water that makes it easier to float in. And if you even look up pictures of the Dead Sea to see like people floating in it and stuff, it looks really gross. Like it's not a nice sea. It every there is no like nice beach around it. It's rocky, and there's nothing green. If you look at the rocks, like the beach around it, and the mountains and the hills, all this area all around it is just all brown and dead. And that's because salt kills things. It like purges things. What they used to do, um, 
back in ancient times when you came and conquered somebody and you really didn't want them to bounce back, you would till salt into the ground so nothing could grow up again. You would burn everything and then till salt in the ground. And it would be a long time until that salt dissipated so then you could grow again. So that tells you if this is the saltiest body of water that just nothing grows. Now I said all that, but in Abraham's time, this was lush and green. And it says, we'll read shortly here. It says that this area all around, especially right down around here, all up the Jordan. It still is up along the Jordan River, but all down around here is was like Eden, which you know that's the Garden of Eden, paradise, and like the Nile River, with how lush it is, and the Nile, like the Delta area where it's really lowlands, kind of like what we have here, where it's very flat. But then there's all riverways running in it, so it always has water, and it's lush and green, and you can always grow stuff. Well, that was what the area around, which I'm sure they did not call it the Dead Sea then, because it was lush and green. Well, they have traveled down and they're kind of on the edge looking at this on the east side here, the Dead Sea, looking at it. And they have a problem, and that is that now Abraham and Lot have so many cattle and like sheep and camels and cows. Um, they probably had donkeys as well. They just have so much livestock that it is difficult for them to find enough grass and vegetation to feed all of them when they are together. And this is just, it, part of this is that it's just natural when an organization or a group of people grows that you start to outgrow stuff and it's difficult to manage. And to give you an idea of how many, how much stuff they have, because they definitely have thousands, Abraham has 300 plus men that work for him, that travel with him, which is a lot. So picture the church and every seat in there on Sunday has a man sitting in it. And all those guys who work for Abraham are probably more like servants for him. Okay. And then they, they also have families that travel with him. So they have all these tents, they travel and that picture, how many livestock you have to have to have that many people to manage it. That's a lot. So they are moving around with that. And that's just Abraham's. Lot has some too. We're not sure how many men Lot has. But it's enough that it makes a difference when they are together versus when they are not. And in verse 7 it tells this is not the only problem that happens. And this probably stems from not enough food for the animals. That There is now strife between the herdsmen of Abraham's cattle and the herdmen of Lot's cattle. So there's a little bit of a fight probably going on about who, uh, I got my sheep here first, this is mine. It's like, no, we've been here for the past week. This is ours. We just went to go get water and we came back. And, you know, you can imagine what would arise. And this is where we get to see a 
a glimpse into who Abraham is. Besides, we know he has great faith. You can read about it in Hebrews, chapter 11, all about his faith. Some more, and we'll see more of it as we look at his life. But this is the first time we see what his other character traits are, what else he possesses. And we find that he is very wise and a meek man in the way that he deals with this issue that comes up. So verse 8 and 9 now of chapter 13, this is what Abraham's solution is. And Abraham said unto Lot, Let there be no strife, I pray thee, between me and thee, and between my herdmen and thy herdmen. For we be brethren, is not the whole land before thee? Separate thyself, I pray thee, from me. If thou wilt take the left hand and go to the right, I will, then I will go to the right. Or if thou depart to the right hand, then I will go to the left. So, Abraham says, and this is this is typically how um, this is depicted. I don't know if this is how it really happened, but it seems logical to me that Abraham and Lot are up on a high place. We'll give Abraham a beard because he's real old. Come up to a high place and they're looking out over all this nice land around the Dead Sea and then all this rockier because this is more of a mountainous hilly area right here that divides the Jordan from the Mediterranean Sea. And they look out over it, and Abraham says, look, it's just getting too big for us. It's, we're going to keep having these fight problems. And he said, I want you to pick the land that you want to take to move all your people and your cattle to to graze, and then I'll take whatever you don't pick. So... Um, this is very telling of who Abraham is because he's very wise by putting it that way to him because he could just say you get this half and I get that half and that's the way it is because I'm the oldest, I'm the uncle I'm the leader of the family He could that would be within his right to do that but what he says instead is, you pick because naturally whatever Lot picks, that was his own choice, and he cannot come back later and say, well, that was unfair that you let me pick. I mean, has anybody ever said, that was unfair that you let me pick which cupcake I wanted? Probably not, unless you're trying to pull a trick on them. And this is good to note because this is very different from... Um, Abraham's brother's descendants. If you know the story of Jacob with Laban and Rachel and Leah, that Jacob worked seven years for um, Rachel's hand in marriage, and Laban tricks and switches his daughters because he knows that he, Jacob really loves Rachel. And he knows that probably if he marries Leah and he tricks him, that he'll work another seven years just to get Rachel. That's what he does. 
And there are many more stories that go along with it that Laban is just somebody who he is, he is just not a um, trustworthy or an honest person. And he got that from somewhere. And Abraham is the opposite of that. He is always, he always is um, one, one level above everything. He's above bar on everything. You'll see later that there is when he wants to bury his wife, Sarah, when she dies, he buys a piece of property from someone where they say, oh, no, we'll just give it to you. We like you so much. He says, no, no, no. How much does it, would it cost anybody else? I'll just buy it. I don't want you to give it to me. And there are other times where he does a similar thing because I don't want to spoil a later story where he does the same thing, where he never um, just takes anything. He wants to make sure that there's no disagreements or bad blood in any way. So, now, the other thing also we know here is that there's only one good land to pick. This is the obvious choice. You're going to pick the land around the Dead Sea. It, it always has water. It, um, because of the way that the weather works, the, wa the air the warm air, I forget which way it works, but the air comes off of the water and as it goes over the mountains, it hits it and it always rains on this side of the mountains. Rarely rains on the other side. So naturally, that is the good side to pick. And um, Abraham is willing to give up the best side. Even though it'll be to his detriment, he is willing to give it up. And remember, this is not just some other business partner. This is his nephew. He does care about him, and he wants good things for him. Okay, so verse 10 now through 13. And Lot lifted up his eyes and beheld all the plain of Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So, before Sodom and Gomorrah destroyed, spoiler alert, it is a nice place. Afterwards, it's what you see today. Even as the garden of the Lord, which is the garden of Eden, like the land of Egypt, thou, as thou comest into Zoar. Then Lot chose him all the plain of Jordan, and Lot journeyed east, and they separated themselves, the one from the other. Abraham dwelled in the land of Canaan, and Lot dwelled in the cities of the plain, and pitched his tent toward Sodom. But the men of Sodom were wicked and sinners before the Lord exceedingly. Okay, so they don't know, well, they're pretty sure they know where Sodom and Gomorrah are, but Sodom and Gomorrah are like two cities down here. And Lot comes down here, puts his tent right in a nice flat area, has his cattle grazing out in the, sh in the fields. And it specifically mentions that he put his door facing towards the city of Sodom. And... Um, this might have been okay if he picked the best land that there ever was. 
And except for the fact that verse 13 alludes to the fact that the cost of this good land is far too great. It's going to cost him in the end. And verse 12 really tells us um, how weak his character is in the fact that he put his doorway facing towards Sodom. Because Lot thinks that he is capable of not mixing in with the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. He thinks that he's strong enough to resist it, that he can, he can dabble in it, he can do business with them, he can be all buddy-buddy with them and, not, and resist what they are offering. And this is, everything in the Bible ties together, but we just finished before Christmas break talking about temptation. And one of the things that we said of the, that sometimes the only answer is to run, to get, to get, put yourself in a position where you are not tempted by it. And Lot did the very opposite thing. He put himself right there and he said, I'm not in the city, but I can watch it. I can see what's going on there. And this is, will. there are more chapters to come that are going to, flesh out Lot's story more about that. But it's just, this is the beginning of that warning of meddling and just dipping your toe in the water when it's a water that you should be running from. Okay, verse 14 through 18 now uh, to finish up. And the Lord said unto Abraham, after that Lot was separated, after that Lot was separated from him, lift up now thy eyes and look from the place where thou art northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land which thou seest, I will give it to thee and to thy seed forever. And I will make thy seed as the dust of the earth, so that if a man can number the dust of the earth, then shall thy seed be numbered. Arise, walk through the land in the length of it and in the breadth of it, for I will give it unto thee. And Abraham removed his tent and came and dwelt in the plain of Mamre, which is in Hebron, and built there an altar unto the Lord. Okay. So, Abram, um, afterwards, he's probably somewhere around here. He's standing there after Lot leaves. And before he gets ready to move again because this is going to mean because he's in the more dry arid area he's going to have to move his flocks constantly he can't just stay in one place he's always going to have to be moving which is in line with what god has told him to do so even though this is a harder path that abraham chose and that it's going to be more work it, it tells you about his character because one is that God loves a hard worker. God never called anybody who was lazy. Never said, I need the laziest person in the world. Just didn't ever do that. He also, this tells you that, more importantly, that Abraham has a servant's attitude. 
that he was willing to allow, that he was made himself lower than Lot. Say, pick whatever you want. I, by all the rules, especially then, the rules were way more about the oldest person gets the place of honor, gets gets the best opportunity, gets the good seat, whatever it might be. But Abraham does the opposite. He says, no, I want you, Lot, to pick what's what you would like. And the bigger picture then that he gets is after Lot is gone, which is very telling, because notice Lot is never mentioned about offering any sacrifices, doing anything with the altars to God. So that's another, just another part of how Jesus talks about this, that the sword that hit, that he is like a sword that will divide a family. And initially when you read that, it sounds like, whoa, why is God dividing up a family? Well, it's not because if you understand the, um, the, the original language and the culture, what that is really saying is that it is, um, it is like a cooking knife where you cut things up, where you separate things apart. And what it's saying is that God is that dividing line, that he will, what your choices are about him will separate you out from other people. And that's exactly what has happened with Abram. Every time he chooses to go the next step further in following God, he's separated out. God's saying, yep, you are more in my path. Anyone who wants to go with you, I will accept as well. But when they make a choice not to, it divides you out further from them. So he now is getting a bigger picture. Each time he goes further in with his relationship and his friendship with God, he gets a better picture. So now... Canaan is not just this general area. He says, look northward, north, look southward, look westward, or sorry, eastward, and look westward. So everything that you can see will be yours. Now it's going to be expanded even more later, we'll see. But right now, whatever you can see from there will be yours. Then the great nation, because all he's known right now is a great nation. He says that your seed or your descendants will be like the dust of the earth. Now, a lot of people say you can't count the sand on the beaches. And there's a lot of sand on the beaches. But think about the dust. I mean, where does it even come from? You clean whatever in your house, like your, let's say your TV screen. You clean your TV screen. Like two weeks later, there is just thousands of little pieces of dust on it. Again, it, you can't control it. You can't count it you can't even see it all you can tell is that there's like haze on things and there's just thousands and millions and billions and trillions and what is it a google google's of pieces and 
God says, that's what your descendants are going to be like. So he's like, wow, that's a lot. Whether that is hyperbole or actual, like, as many as that, that is a lot. So he's getting a more full picture each time that he sees that he goes deeper with God and has more faith and puts uh, relies on God each time. So like Moana, he is not deterred by the unknown. That doesn't hold him back. He is also not deterred by the difficulty in the way. He is willing to choose whatever the harder path is, so long as that's the path God has chosen for him. And this kind of, I wonder if when he gave Lot the choice, he thought in his mind, because this is what they used to do a lot back then, was they would cast lots, or basically they would say, whatever God... um, Whatever God chooses to happen, that'll happen. So, for example, with Jonah, they cast lots for who it was that had um, brought that storm on the, on the ship. And they said, well, God will pick out who, whoever it is because he'll make sure they choose the short one. Jonah chooses the short one. And he was the one. All right. So there are lots of times you can see throughout the Bible where people use that, and that is a way that they allow God to choose the right thing for them. And I wonder if Abraham thought that, that he didn't know which place to choose, even more than just um, being meek about it, was that he said, I'm going to be kind towards Lot. I'm going to show him honor. And... I'm not going to try to influence his decision in any way. I will let God choose where we should go. And he gets the area where he is going to have to move around a lot more. And that's going to be important later. So he's not, and he knows that's the more difficult thing. Because he knows, just like Moana knew, he knows that he's called. He tries, in the movie, Moana tries to do all these things on the island, to be happy, to be satisfied with those things. And I think Abraham might have tried to be, because remember, he's 80 when he finally leaves, maybe 75. When he finally goes on this journey following God, he may have tried to be satisfied with other things in his life. And none of that was fulfilling the way God was. And he now he knows the voice of God the more he spends time with him. And he knows what he should do because he can hear God speaking to him. So we're going to continue on next week um, and we'll see a little bit more of Lot's choice in choosing Sodom and Gomorrah. Thank you.